haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 21? And as you heard, we'll be in verses 20 through 25. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find that on page 590. 590, chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. I want to re-extend the invitation that David gave to the introduction to Veritas Lunch next Sunday. You all are welcomed. You all are invited. Um, No matter how long you've been a part of this church, it's an informal time where we share a meal together and we talk a bit about who we are as a church and what we believe and why we do the things that we do. Some leaders will be there that you can meet. And so we haven't done one in quite a while. And I know that it's the reason we're doing one now is there's been a lot of new faces uh, that have been added to us. So um, if you're one of those newer people that hasn't attended one of those before, next Sunday, following service, uh, please stick around. We would love to have you. As he mentioned, there's only one person signed up at this point, which is going to make that a a very awkward lunch, potentially, for that individual. So, and you'll need to own that if you should come and you don't. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, again, we come before you with your word, with each other, We love you. We love one another. We don't love you as much as we should. We don't love one another as much as we should. But would you help us, God, to love you more and to love others well? This morning as we read your word, would it do a work in our hearts? Would you make us feel things that maybe we haven't felt for you before, maybe that we haven't felt in far too long, would you teach us truth this morning? By your word, God, put something in our mind that that hasn't been there before or maybe remind us of something that we've forgotten. And God, we pray that all of that would have a lasting change on us, that it would change the way we think, that it would change the way we speak, that it would change the way we live We pray that you would do that today through the preaching of your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, 80 sermons in, down to the very last six verses of John's gospel account. Uh, A sad day for me, a happy day for me exciting to get through this whole book, and also I've gotten very used to spending time personally in John every week and learning about Jesus and having my eyes opened every week in ways that they weren't open before, so I know God's going to continue to do that through His Word, but I'm going to miss this Gospel of John, and I'm sad to see it go. What does the word gospel mean? I ask my kids this all the time. The word gospel means good news. 
So here we are, the last six verses of John's gospel. That means that John is basically done telling us the good news. He's done telling us the story of who Jesus is and what he has done. He has told the story of how Jesus came and lived and suffered and died on behalf of and in the place of sinners so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. And in these last verses, we have three men. Look with me. There's three men here. You probably heard them identified, and David was reading the text, but Peter, John, and Jesus Christ. And Peter and John, other than Jesus, are the most prominent men in this gospel. Peter and John are. So by the end of this book, other than Jesus, we probably know these men, Peter and John, better than we know anybody else. So it is fitting that the book ends with the three of them. Peter, John, and Jesus. So as it ends, real quickly, here's a summary of John's account. Very end of John's account of the gospel. Here's a summary. Jesus has lived a perfect life. And John has showed us that. And it is true. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Perfect obedience. Perfect love for God and love for others. Perfect ministry. Perfect across the board. The perfect life of Jesus. And John has shown us that. He has also told us and shown us that Jesus has died a substitutionary death. Jesus has died a substitutionary death. Christians, by and large, know to say and would say, Jesus died for me. And this word substitutionary is just a word that brings out what that really means, that Jesus died. And it means this, that when Jesus died, he died as a substitute. He died in the place of sinners like you and me. He wasn't just setting an example for people. The purpose in his death was to substitute himself, to die in the place of, to die instead of sinners like you and me who should be judged for our sin that way. But out of his great love, he has died for sinners. And then John is given the account that Jesus has risen back to life. And by raising back to life, Jesus conquered death. And he conquered death for those for whom he died. 
And now soon he will leave his disciples and he will ascend to the Father in heaven. And that's the story John has told. Jesus came, lived a perfect life. He has died a substitutionary death. He has been raised back to life, conquering death for his people. He will soon now go and ascend to be with the Father. That's where he is now. That's where he is today, even as I preach. But first, these last six verses, before John closes out his book, he records something for us. Jesus, before he ascends to go back to the Father, goes for a walk on the beach with Peter. And John follows closely behind. He's listening carefully. And he reports this for us in these verses that we're looking at today. So I think we're pretty well set up. Let's walk with Peter, John, and Jesus Christ this morning. Let's follow them along this beach. And my prayer has been and will be that we would all follow Jesus the way that they did. That we would all follow Jesus, not perfectly, of course, but wholeheartedly and repentantly. So verse 20, we're looking again at verses 20 through 25. Let's read through these verses and take our time, make sure we understand What's happening here? Verse 20. Peter turned and saw, and he saw John. He saw John, and here is how John is always described in this book. The disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So Peter turned and saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? It would have been enough for John to describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, here in verse 20. It would have been enough for John to say that. By by this point in this book, we have learned that that is John's humbled and grateful way of identifying himself. So if you read through the Gospel of John, whenever it talks about John, he never names himself. He just describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that wasn't an arrogant thing. That wasn't a proud thing for him. It was the opposite. His identity was, I'm loved by Jesus. And that's anything and everything to me. So, It's interesting, right? Because that's all he had to say, that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them, and and we should all recognize, okay, so that is John. But he takes it a step further. Did you hear that? He also identifies himself by taking us back to John's actions in the Last Supper with Jesus, which is recorded in John 13. And... Like our verses today, 
If we go back to John chapter 13, we would see that other than Jesus, John and Peter at that dinner were sort of the main characters, just like they are here. Jesus was having dinner with his disciples, and he revealed to them, you can imagine being at this dinner. He revealed to them that one of them was going to betray him. He didn't say who. One of you is going to betray me. And John, we know, was seated right next to Jesus. John was probably the closest friend to Jesus. John was very young, probably 18, 19 years old at the time. He was looked out for by the other disciples. He was certainly looked out for and cared for and protected by Jesus himself. So he's usually right next to Jesus. And here he's actually leaning on Jesus at this dinner. And so when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, Peter motions, it tells us, to John and signals to him to ask Jesus, who, who is it? Who is it that's going to betray Jesus? So John here takes us back to that night and specifically the closeness that he shared with Jesus. Other than that, I don't know exactly why John included that. But I do know that in John 13, like here, Peter and John were these sort of main characters. And I know that in John 13, it becomes very clear to those who are reading that John is very close to Jesus. And Peter apparently feels close enough to John to go through him to get to Jesus to get an answer to his question. So let's keep reading verse 21. Peter has turned and saw John. When Peter saw him, and Peter here gets a little distracted, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter is asking here about the future of John. If you haven't been here in weeks before, I want to catch you up. When Peter looks at Jesus and says, hey, what about this guy? What about this man? John, who is following them, Peter is asking about the future of John, which will be made clear in a minute. And he's asking about the future of John because Jesus had just told Peter his future. In verse 18, Jesus had just told Peter in verse 18 that he was going to die a martyr's death. And so Peter now says, well, what about John? What about his future? So there's been a lot of speculation for the last 2,000 years about why Peter is asking that question. Why is he curious about John's future? And we can only speculate. Was he just curious? Was it random? Was he upset with the prophecy? Some have believed that. I don't. We don't. If you were here last week. Was he upset with the prophecy? Was he jealous? Maybe he was jealous of John. Was he insecure and wondering why John, who is evidently closer to Jesus, why John wasn't chosen 
to lead the disciples after Jesus left. So maybe there's an insecurity there. Or, and this is what I think, was Peter concerned for John? As Peter knows the trials that are awaiting him and the persecution that is awaiting him, and he looks at John, is he concerned because he is close to John and he is protective of John, seeing him perhaps as a younger brother, maybe a a little brother. We know John's a young man. Either way, Peter looks back and says, hang on, what about this man? What about John? What's going to happen to John? And Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. If that sounds to you like, that's none of your business, Peter, you're probably right. That is how these words of Jesus read. That's none of your business, Peter. And apparently, as we look ahead to the next verse, when Jesus said this, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? Apparently, as we look ahead to this next verse, that led to rumors in the church during the first century that John was not going to die before Jesus came back. And so there was a rumor in the early church that as John's death neared, the return of Christ neared. It was just a rumor, and John nearing the end of his life, most likely, as he's writing this gospel, he feels compelled to correct that misunderstanding. And that's exactly what he does in the next verse, 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. There's the rumor. Yet, and here's his response to it, Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but... If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So John addresses that rumor by clarifying that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. And apparently, according to John's interpretation at least, that is not what Jesus meant. Though John had outlived all the other apostles... By the time John is writing this gospel account, all the other apostles have been killed. They've been martyred. So he has outlived them, but he expected to die soon. And if there were people who were around in the church who were anxious for the return of Christ, and they were assuming that as the death of John got closer, the return of Jesus got closer, knowing that rumor... John writes this so that they're not devastated, so that they don't lose hope, so that they don't lose faith when John, in fact, dies. So he brings us clarity. So apparently, even in the fourth century, so in the 300s, there were people who still believed this rumor 
I found out this week. In fact, Augustine, who writes in the 4th century, was sort of laughing at these people. There was one group that said if you went to John's grave, that the earth above his grave, you could see it. If you look closely enough, you could see the earth above his grave sort of rising and falling. <laughs> and rising and falling. And they said, see, That's, that can only be that he's still breathing underground. So... They didn't read this verse. They should have read this verse. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So this is common what John does at the very end of this book that he's written. The author identifies himself as John. I, I am this disciple, the beloved disciple who is bearing witness, he says here. And as others can confirm, he's told us the truth. His testimony is true, he says. So at the end of his book, he identifies himself as this beloved disciple, and he ensures all of his listeners that He's not making this up. This is 100% true. Which is a big deal if you read back again through the Gospel of John. Because frankly, there are things in the Gospel of John that are hard to believe. And there are things that at times you might come to and think, he's got to be making that up. He's got to be exaggerating. But he puts his stamp, his signature, if you will. Read it again with that in mind this week. He signs his name at the end and said, this entire testimony is true. And finally, verse 25. The last verse. I don't even want to read it. We'll just leave it out there. And we got to read it. Verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Sounds very much like the end of chapter 20. Here's John 20, 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And here again is 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And then here's the last verse of John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And again, finally, here's the rest of chapter 21, verse 25. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's not literal, of course. 
that can't be what John means. He doesn't mean that literally. If you were to write down everything that Jesus did into books, there would be room on earth to stack those books. That's not what he means. But I also don't think that John is just exaggerating. So what a thing to say at the end of his book, and I think this is what John means. The truth we have about Jesus is enough. The truth that he has just finished telling us about Jesus is just the right amount. It is enough to answer the question, who is Jesus? It is enough to convict you of sin. It is enough to save you. It's enough to leave every one of us without an excuse before God. It is enough to sustain us through suffering. It is enough to fill our hearts with joy. It is enough. As John said at the end of chapter 20, it is enough to bring us to belief and life in his name. In fact, any more would be more than we could contain. It would be any more than the world could contain. It would be any more than we could hold. It would be any more than we could handle. And so this is enough. So that's the end of my explanation of these six verses. Now, what have we learned? What have we learned reading this? Let's apply this to our lives. What does this text mean for me? What does this text now mean for you? How do these verses, good from God, apply to my life? That's what you should want to know. That's what I want to know. That's what you should always want to know when you're reading God's Word. I hope you know that this is what separates a student of God's Word to, from a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't just want to know what this word says, I want to know how it applies to my life. I want to know how my life needs to change. I want to know what needs to look different. I want to know what I'm supposed to do in light of this truth. I don't just want to be a dictionary. 
I don't want to just be a walking encyclopedia that has all the right answers. I want my heart changed. I want my soul changed because of my understanding of the gospel. Well, you should want that. So please don't be just after the pursuit of knowledge. How does this apply to my life? Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. This is what we're after. Always when we read God's word. Listen to how Isaiah put it. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not, God says, return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So I'm just, and I would encourage you when you read God's word, when you hear a sermon, I'm just praying Isaiah 55 right back to God. So here's your word. It's, it's rained on me. It's snowed on me. And just like when it rains out there and it snows out there, what are we seeing? Everything's greener, for example. I love that. I was just telling my wife that. When it starts raining, one of the things I love about the rain is everything starts to turn green. Maybe you like brown. I don't like brown. I like green. So rain comes and it accomplishes something. One of the things it succeeds in doing is producing green grass, for example. So I'm praying Isaiah 55 back up to God and saying, you've just rained on me with your word. You've just snowed on me with your word. And now I'll say the words right back to him. Accomplish something. Succeed in something in my heart. Let it bear fruit. Don't let me. I hope you pray like this every Sunday. Oh God, don't let me leave that service the same. Don't let that happen. Don't let me hear your word and hear the preaching of your word and read it and study it and give an hour of my life and not be any different because of it. So God, apply this to our life. Why is this here, God? Why has John written this story for us? Well, one obvious motive of John. You're already there. One obvious motive is to dispel the rumor that he would not die before Jesus came back. So if you've been thinking that, you can be relieved to know that John really did die, and Jesus has not yet returned. You didn't miss it. So we've looked at that, and that might be one final loose end that John was looking to tie up in this epilogue. But there's something else. And as I thought about it, it is the last thing in this sermon 
And in this sermon series that I wanted to focus us on. Go back with me to verse 22. Verse 22 was Jesus redirecting Peter after what I would call a reasonable question. I didn't have a problem with Peter's question. I would have asked Peter's question. His question again, verse 21, was just, Lord, what about John? Is he going to die a martyr? And like I said, I think that was mostly out of concern for his little brother, for John, this young disciple. It's a reasonable question with a very strong response. And that's how it's supposed to look and read to you. Like, so you get surprised by his answer like Peter probably did. So you're reading, you're going along, and this is what's happening to Peter, and you're wondering, well, I wonder what's going to happen to the other guys. And, oh, John's right behind him. Peter looked and saw, hey, what about this guy? Yeah, what about this guy? Mind your own business. That's how it's supposed to feel. You're reading that thinking, this seems kind of disproportionate. That's a very strong response down Jesus. Verse 22, this is what he said. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Okay, so let's. Let's end talking about the, the very last words of Jesus recorded by John. I would like to end this sermon and this series talking about following Christ. Jesus' final command to Peter is the command that he gives to every one of us, follow me. Charles Spurgeon said that is the main business of the life of a Christian. The main business of your life is to follow Christ. You want to boil it down? Follow Christ. You want to sum it up? Follow Christ. You want to quickly define what a Christian is? A follower of Christ. So we're not surprised. Last words, Jesus says to Peter again, you follow me. What does that mean? What did that mean to Peter? Obviously, it meant more than, hey, follow me along this beach. Oh, that's where the footsteps picture came from <laughs> that every good Christian has in their home with their Lord is my shepherd wallpaper and their Thomas Kincaid painting. And I hope you have all those things if you're really a Christian. <laughs> I have none of those things. I'm just kidding. Intentionally do not. Uh, three things, in conclusion, three things that follow me meant to Peter. So Peter's hearing follow me. I want to know what, 
Peter understood that to mean. So I'm going to load this up with everything I know from this gospel and everything I know about Peter and especially their most recent interactions between Jesus and Peter. And I want to know what this meant to Peter when Jesus said, follow me. And then I want to think about what does that mean for me? I want to follow Jesus that way. So three things, number one. Follow me meant to Peter, mind your own business. Verse 22 again. If it is my will that he remain until I come, and here it is, what is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? Mind your own business, Peter. That clearly is something that follow me meant. There's a balance here. And obviously, Peter was unbalanced because he gets rebuked. There is a minding of others' business that is good. I hope you know that. There is a minding of others' business that is good. You, of course, are in your kid's business. You are loving others and confronting those you know and love of sin. You are watching and following the example of others. This is all minding the business of others. This is all minding the lives of others. And so there is a minding the business of others that is good that we are called to. What's the point? The point is, in doing that, make sure that you don't neglect your own soul. And we are prone to this. Prone to get caught up in other things and other people's business and other churches' business and other people's callings. And in doing that, we neglect our own souls. We sang a song today, and in that song, we confess that we are prone to wonder. I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to get distracted. I'm prone to lose my focus. Before, here's a point, before you address sin in others, are you addressing sin in yourself, for example? Are you as open with calling yourself out as you are with calling others out? Or do you get caught up in the sins and issues of others and neglect your own? There's a safer way that Christians do this, and that is to criticize sinfully other churches. I'm not saying you should never criticize another church. There's a call to that, and there's examples of that, and at times that becomes necessary and important. But I'm talking more about something that many in our circles are known for, and it is the sort of flippant criticism of other churches, and often in that criticism of work that God is doing in other places. It is possible for God to even use unhealthy churches, you know. Remember the disciples, that was their criticism. They came 
good things were happening and God was doing it. But hey, hey, they told Jesus, right? Hey, they're not doing things the right way. They're not saying what they're supposed to be saying. I don't know if you know about these guys. They're going rogue. And you remember what Jesus told them? Why don't you mind your own business? If I want to use them, I'll use them. Why don't you just follow me? So do you neglect yourself? Do you neglect your own soul? Do you neglect your own church? Are you caught up in the criticism of others? Are you caught up in the congregations of others? Do you compare yourself to others? Maybe that was a bit of what Peter was starting to do. Well, what about you, Christian? Do you compare yourself to others? Are you discontent with your own life because you're comparing yourself to others? Are you discontent with the ministry that God has called you to because you're comparing yourself to the ministry that someone else is called to? What's Jesus saying here? Follow me. Mind your own calling. I mean, Peter and John had dramatically different callings. They were both to follow Christ. Peter was going to lead the early church, and he was going to be persecuted heavily, and he was going to die a horrible death as a martyr. And John, as best we know, lived a very long life and wrote a bunch of books. And God was... Equally glorified in John, just like he was in Peter. And if John wanted to be a Peter, or if Peter wanted to be a John, they would seriously miss out. Don't neglect your own calling. You may be called to a short life. You may be called to a long life. You may minister publicly. You may minister privately. You may make a name for yourself. You may not. You may be remembered by people. Maybe no one will remember you. There are worse things that could happen, friend. So what? What about your legacy? So what? Is this about you? Or is this about Christ? Oh, but a legacy would just mean that I honored God and I glorified. Are, are you sure that's your motive? Because I, I could bend it all and make it sound good. If you've been a Christian long enough, you know how to do that. To the glory of God. Oh, brother. Amen. To the glory of God. But do you mean that? I've said that and I haven't meant it. And it's been exposed in me. That no, it's, it's my reputation I'm getting caught up in here. It's my future I'm getting caught up in here. It's, it's how I'm remembered. It's, it's the Myers name. It's my legacy. And so what? 
This is emphatic. When Jesus says, you follow me, in that sentence, the you is written emphatically. You, Peter, don't worry about John. Don't worry about the other disciples. Don't worry about your wife. Don't worry about the kids. Don't worry about your church. First and foremost, what about you and Jesus? What about your own soul? Keep focused. You can just see him turning Peter, right? Peter turned, it said, and saw John. Can't you just see Jesus grabbing Peter and saying, Peter? Pete, what you had to do with Peter all the time? And has to do with you all the time because you're just all over the place. And he just grabs you and says, you, you follow me. What about this? Great for worry and anxiety. What about this? What about that? What about you follow me. Like, here's your road. I don't like my road. Here's your road. <laughs> There's rocks and hills. Where's the, where are the palm trees? There's no palm trees on your road. Maybe there will be. Maybe there was. This is your road. Take, go ahead. Take your foot and step forward. Now take your other foot and step forward. Now look at me. This is what he's saying. Follow me. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Acts 20, 28, even to pastors. Isn't it the pastor's job to care for others? It is, but what does he tell pastors first? Pay careful attention to yourselves and then to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So again, number one, follow me meant to Peter. Mind your own business. Number two, follow me meant to Peter. Glorify me in life and death. I wish we had more time for this. Or I should say, I wish I had more time to understand this. Maybe I will. Follow me, meant to Peter, glorify me in life and in death. So let's go back. Let me read you verse 18, what Jesus told Peter, had just told Peter. That's why I bring it up about his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and Walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. That was a reference to crucifixion. When someone said stretch out your hands, that was shorthand for crucifixion. Peter, when you're old, you will be crucified. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now here's the glory. Verse 19, John says this. Jesus said... To show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him again before, back then, follow me, Peter. It was the last time Peter heard Jesus say, follow me. After he told him the death through which he was going to glorify God by. Glorify me, Jesus says, in life and in death. That means that what makes your life so important, 
what makes your life so uh, amazing. Let me just sound like a, a prosperity gospel preacher for a while. What makes your life so important, what makes your life so amazing is not what you do, but how you do it. Whether you're preaching to millions of people or you're washing dishes so that your family can eat a meal that evening together. Do you do whatever it is you do for the glory of God? Do you do it for His honor? Do you do it for His name's sake? Therefore, you do it the way He wants you to do it. You do it with the attitude He wants you to do it with. Before you do it, you get geared up by remembering the good things that He's done for you so that you're thankful and grateful and you're overflowing out of that. And then whether it's spectacular or extraordinary or it's mundane and ordinary, you do it, whatever it is, for His glory and for His honor. And even if no one sees that ministry, He sees it and He knows the condition of your heart when you're doing it. And He is so pleased and He is so filled with joy when you do that for His glory. And for his honor. It's like, look at this person. They get no recognition for that. They get no pats on the back for that. No one even knows that they're doing that. And, and, now, and look at their heart. They're glad to do it. And look at why they're glad to do it. They're glad to do it because they love me. You change the countenance of God. Bring pleasure to God. Can you imagine that? You, me, bringing pleasure to God by glorifying Him. So he says, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. Nothing more mundane or ordinary than eating food and drinking water. You mean I can drink water and God can be glorified in it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why are you doing these things? How are you doing these things? What is your heart when you're doing these things? What are your motives? What are your reasons? What are you thinking about? What is your goal? What are your priorities? What are your ultimate desires? And if it's God, if the answer to those questions is God, then whatever you do, whatever you do, it is sacred. It is holy. It is bringing honor and glory to God. So glorify me in your life, but also, it meant to Peter, and in your death. And this is what I really wish I had more time to think about. You and I think about our life for sure, but what about your death? I don't remember praying before this week that I would have the opportunity to glorify God in my death. I don't remember ever praying that. Because I'm never going to die. I mean, this is how you, you think and live so often. I haven't been faced with that reality. I think it was good news for Peter to hear that Though he denied Christ three times, 
He was going to die for Jesus. He was going to be faithful to the end. He had just told Peter that. When he told Peter, Peter, you follow me, Peter knew that meant glorify me in your life and in your death. God, I pray that I will have the opportunity to glorify him in my death. Maybe, and I know this sounds morbid to some of you, maybe death won't come quickly for many of us. And maybe because death won't come quickly, we will have opportunity to shine like bright stars in darkness to the glory of God. I know that's crazy talk. Who thinks like that? I think Christians think like that. To follow Jesus is until I'm done. Until I'm done. As long as someone's watching, as long as this life is on display in this universe for your glory, oh God, get everything you can out of it. Life, death, So number one, follow me meant to Peter, mind your own business. Number two, follow me meant to Peter, glorify me in life and death. And then finally, number three, follow me meant to Peter, trust me. Trust me. Ultimately, God is the only one who can be trusted. I hope you have trustworthy people in your life. But even the most trustworthy person in your life does not hold a candle to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is incapable, think about it, of breaking a promise. I'm capable of that. He's not even capable of it. It's not even a possibility. He can be trusted to follow Jesus means to trust him. It means to take him at his word. Even as I said that, I, I feel conviction. That's so many words that I don't take him at. To trust him. To take him at his word. In other words, we see in these verses the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. That's why he's trustworthy, by the way. Friends, if God doesn't know the future or control the future, he cannot be trusted with it. <laughs> he's just like you, just making adjustments. You can trust him to do his best when he gets there. Oh, it's terrible. That is not true, thankfully. And so we're reminded here of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. What has Peter just learned again? What have we learned again? Jesus knows when Peter is going to die. Jesus knows how Peter is going to die. Jesus intends Peter to die at that time in that way for this purpose. What does that mean? 
It means that Jesus Christ is sovereign. That means that Jesus Christ knows all things. That means that Jesus Christ is in control of all things. That's all sovereignty means. He knows all things. He ordains all things. He wills all things. He is in control of all things. There is not anything that is outside the sphere of God's control or influence or knowledge. That's what sovereignty means. If you've been taught God is sovereign, but he chooses to not be sovereign over all things, that's not sovereign. You've got to get a different word. You're not allowed to use that word. That doesn't mean sovereign. He knows all things. He is in control of all things. And Jesus knows when John will die. And he knows how John will die. And he asserts to Peter here that John's life and John's end is Christ's business and Christ's jurisdiction. And it's not Peter's. So friends, be reminded as you seek to follow Jesus that he is in control. So whatever befalls you, he knows it. And he is here with you. And he has planned it for your good and for his glory. He knows every detail of your life. He knows exactly how every second of every day is going to go. And he knows the very last second. And he's with you. And he means it for your good. Well, I'm in the middle of this now, and I don't see this as good. I know. And of course you don't. Because you're in the middle. Just part of being in the middle. I've been in the middle. I got some things right now. I'm in the middle. And I don't see how this is good. I could be very honest with you about that. I don't see how this is good. But that doesn't mean it's not for my good. That's the step I got to get to over and over again. Hey, just because I don't see it, I don't see a lot of things. Just because I don't get it, I don't get a lot of things. And I'm in the middle, and you can't see the end when you're in the middle. And you can't get joy and happy by the end when you're in the middle, because it's the end, and you're in the middle. I hope you're tracking with me there. I mean, you're in the middle. What's true and what it feels like are two different things. It doesn't mean that it feels the way it feels. It doesn't mean, oh, it's stupid. It shouldn't feel the way it feels. No, it feels the way it feels. You're in the middle of it. 
It's hard. God's ways are mysterious. You got big old dark clouds over you. And oh, look at the silver. There's no silver lining. It's just a dark cloud. Oh, if you could only. No, it's just a dark cloud. And he hides behind that dark cloud with a, we sing this song, a smiling face. And at some point, I don't know when, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's years from now, maybe it's heaven, I don't know, but at some point, that dark cloud's going to bust. And, and you, think, you think the hard stuff was difficult to handle? That's nothing compared to trying to handle and cope with the joy that you're going to have when God does what he has promised to do and come through. But right now, let's just be honest with each other. It's really hard. And it feels terrible sometimes and scary and frightening. And then let's go together to what is true and acknowledge that we can feel things that aren't true and aren't rooted in fact. And we're not thinking straight and seeing straight. And so we come together and we encourage one another to follow Christ, to trust Jesus. We live by faith and not by sight. J.C. Ryle said, It is an unspeakable consolation to remember that our whole future is known and forearranged by Christ. There is no such thing as luck, chance, or accident in the journey of our life. Everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by one who is too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. Let's just say that last part again, because it hits the note of biblical truth. He said that everything in your life, Christian, is arranged by one who is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to do you harm. Is God making a mistake? No. Does God not love me? No. In conclusion, wrapping up this sermon, wrapping up this whole series, I'm reminded of what I stated as one of our questions and one of our goals at the very beginning of this sermon series, and that was to answer the question, who is Jesus? I don't know if you remember that. It was a while ago. We set out to read this book knowing that John was writing to answer that question for us. Who is Jesus? And he wanted us to believe and have life in his name. And he just came out and told us that's why he wrote. So I come back to that question at the end nearly two years later. Who is Jesus? I hope you have a more clear understanding than you did before.
if you still have questions or if you have answers and you don't know what to do with them, that's completely normal. I would encourage you to turn to someone you don't or maybe don't know, but looks like they belong to this church and ask them your questions. Share your concerns with them. Talk to them. Don't leave this place unchanged. If you'd like to talk with me, I'll be up front at the close of service and I'll wait for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, such good, perfect word you always have for us. God, you know there are many in this room who have said that it is our desire to follow you. And you know, God, that there are many in this room who are prone to wander. And God, we're so thankful that we can come back over and over again to your word and have your spirit do work on our minds and on our hearts and move us along this road to glorify you more, to honor you more, to praise you more. So God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people. I pray whatever needs to be done would get done this morning for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.